Uh, the thing is, like, I a couple of years ago, I rented. Um, well, I don't even know where to begin. That's the hardest problem with my story is. Well, here's the thing: you're okay. focusing on the story right now. I'm focused about you, so right. you aren't your only. You don't have one story. You have multiple stories. Right. And so, like, what, what we'll start with is like, well, I'm well. You're a photographer, and we can start there. And no, we, we don't start there. No, we, we don't to, start there. No, we have to start at the very beginning. Well, that's how I met you as a photographer. I was like, oh, I like his work, right? And so before that, where did it take you? Where yes, you, what, I mean, okay, we have okay. to start at the very beginning, like okay. the day that I was born. Oh, shit, okay. We have to go that far back, man. <laughs> it's all so important, trust me. That's why I said Clay, we needed two hours. Clay, not tired as hell. I don't know if I have all that time for uh, you. That's why I said two hours. That's why I was being I'm realistic. giving you an hour and a half. Okay, an hour and a half. I can yeah. do that. Okay. So start like when you're ten. How about that? No, we have to go. <laughs> we have to go to the beginning. No, I'll, I'll I'll rush through the the first part of my life as quickly as possible. But it's mm-hmm. really important to start at the beginning because I was born in a small town called Artesia, New Mexico. Okay, and the reason that's important is because um, I never knew my father. He left before I was born, and my mother was a rodeo champion. She did barrel racing. And so for a lot of the first part of my life, I was raised kind of on the rodeo circuit, just traveling from point A to point B and all that stuff until one day, um, and my memory is, is a little foggy in this sense because I was so young, but I'm going to tell it the way that I've told it my whole life, which is that I remember my mother dropping us off, me and my brother, um, at my grandparents' house in New Mexico when I was really small to, to run to the store, and then I didn't see her again for several, several years. Like she dropped us off, and then went and lived her life. And my grandparents, who were extremely Southern Baptist, raised my brother and I, okay? The reason that's important is because when you're raised in a religious home, you'll find out later that that's, for me, that was something that was really hard to break coming out as a gay man, right? And then later coming out as an atheist on top of that, right? (laughs) Your parents must be so proud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I still don't have any contact with any any of my family. That was a joke. That was yeah. like a dig. <laughs> well, I was in this small town, and then my grandparents raised us the best that they could. Um, Were you close with your grandparents whenever, like, because I was raised by my grandma and my grandpa, and like. That that I loved them so much, um, and they raised me as best as they could, and they were also very religious. Yeah. Um. So how close were you? I with your I feel like I was very close to my grandparents to the point that anybody can be close to somebody that raised them when they're younger. My grandparents passed away before I had my huge life changes and my epiphanies and all this stuff. So like, so they only really saw like what I consider the expired older version of me. I never had to come out to my grandparents. They died before that. You know what I'm saying? I never had to talk about religion. I would give anything if they were still alive so I could ask them all the questions that I've been so curious about, about my upbringing. Or I would love to talk to them about the idea of God or the absence of God and, and Jesus and all these things. But when you're like eight years old, you're just trying to go to Sunday school without, you know, you're, you're struggling getting up on Sundays, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. Were, were you aware that you were homosexual when you were eight? Um, I don't know. First of all, probably even for you back then, there was no social media, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. There was no grinder or scruff or anything Girl, like that. I made mud patties when I was little. Like that's how yeah, like, boring it was. <laughs> so while I concede that I, I feel like I've always been, um, gay or had same sex attractions, I am, we'll say one of the very few gay people that I've ever met that doesn't believe that I was born that way. 
I believe that sexuality is something that is more nurture versus nature. And I'll, we can get into that later. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay so, yeah. For sure. I would love yeah. to get into that because I'm. I think the opposite. Like I. Right. I was. I was born gay. But for my personal life experience, I, it wasn't a choice for me. Oh well, I don't think it's a choice either. There's. There's. There is a middle ground there. Like there are plenty of things that we do or that we become in our younger years that you can't break when you're older as our brains are being developed in all of these things. Like I, I look at it from somebody who's very passionate about science and atheism. I look at it, I try to look at it as, as objectively as possible. And I, in terms of evolution and things like that, I don't think that there's any, I just don't think that I was born gay, but I do specifically recall instances in my life that definitely determined my sexuality. And when you get older, I think that there are things that you just can't undo because your brain has already been formed and certain parts of your brain that control sexuality have been formed. You know what I'm saying? So I look at it that way. Um, in terms of society, whether you're born gay or whether you believe that certain aspects of your childhood made you that way, we still ended up in the same boat. And some things cannot be undone, regardless of whether you're born that way or whether you think that you were raised in a certain way. And what are would be like one of these instances that makes you like kind of cements that homosexuality in you? Like, what would that be like in your case? What was that? What was an what was one of those moments? Well, I think that one of I do think that one of the determining factors of me being gay was being fatherless. And so when kids are in um, high school and they're trying to think of things to to jerk off to before porn. Before the internet, to me, it was my my friends who had fathers who took them fishing and played football with them and was close to them and told them they loved them and hugged them. That When I'm trying to think of things to, to visualize or to sexualize through when I'm going through puberty, those are the things that were most different to me. It also didn't help the fact that I had a mother who was very sexually active. I mean, she's my mother in my childhood and in, in teenage years is... She was married so many times that I don't even know the number. Like, it's, got, it's definitely over 10, definitely over 10 times that she's been married. I meant, um, there are, I have what I call a life box, which is a, basically a collection of things throughout my life, pictures from when I was a young kid. That It's really the only thing that I owned to my, in my life that I've had the longest. And as I go through these pictures, I have photos of people who I know that I said that I loved and of guys that my mother was married to that I called dad and I couldn't remember their name if my life depended on it. Wow. And when you grow up like that, it's, it, almost, it does become normalized. You don't, for me, I didn't realize that it was abnormal until much later in my life, that it's not normal for a kid to have somebody that he said he <laughs> loved and called dad and then couldn't even remember his name. No, yeah. Let alone three or four guys. And were all these men kind of in her life because she actually loved them or was it more like a financial stable kind of mo kind of thing for do you are you even aware of it I like, don't know I don't ha I don't have any contact with any of my family and so that's one of the things that I probably would ask her I would say if anything um what are your thoughts on it do you believe that someone can be in love 10 times at least or um yeah um I don't think that there's any rules to define who you're in love with who you're not in love with I meant as a gay man, I would say that I've been in love with straight men who I could never be with. Oh, and <laughs> on the other end of the spectrum, I say that there's several instances that I've had sex with people with of somebody that I could never see myself falling in love with. We'll get to this later, but I'm a very huge advocate that if you get to have sex with somebody you're in love with, you're just fucking lucky. Yeah. 
You're just lucky, honestly. So going back to New Mexico, eventually my grandparents became too old to take care of me, right? And is this around what age? Because I think you said they died when you were eight, right? Well, no, they didn't die when I was oh. eight. But that's kind of like when my the forming of my sexuality kind of started. Oh, okay, and okay. I started noticing same-sex attractions to my buddies and stuff like that. You know, like I went to a middle school where uh, where we, after gym, we all showered together. And it was communal showers, you know. And so that's the moment when I started noticing. I was like, ooh. You know, I'm, I'm attracted to these guys when they're having girlfriends or or you know, I had a locker room moment and it wasn't really like in the showers because um, most of the guys in my school didn't take showers. But there was this one guy who was like the hottest guy in school <laughs> and he was had his shorts and he opened up his shorts and he was showing like one of the other straight boys and he kind of like rammed in the butt like like with his shorts on against the guy. And I was like, oh, I wish I was that guy. <laughs> like, I wish I would have seen it. And I was like, oh, fuck. And uh, I was like, man, I am such a homo. But I was never really out whenever I was in high school. You know? Oh, yeah. The thought of me coming out in high school, I mean... I dropped out of high school eventually, but when I did go to high school, it was in a small Texas town, and the thought of ever coming out in that school was, I mean, back then, was just non-existent. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't even recall anybody being feminine, in my, like any guys being feminine in my school. So, I mean, the thought of ever coming out, not only that, but being raised by grandparents who <laughs> regularly taught that, you know, gay people will be tortured forever in a lake of fire... Mm-hmm will kind of inhibit that desire to come out to your family. You know what I'm saying? And honestly, when you're 10, 11, 12 in small town New Mexico, there, there I didn't even know what that what the term coming out would mean. Mm. I do remember when I was younger having my, my um, I guess maybe it was my great uncle, my grandmother's brother. The first wedding I ever attended as a kid was his wedding. And he was, I always thought that he, looking back now, that he was slightly feminine. And he had this amazing wedding, and a month later they got a divorce, and it was because he was gay. And he, and later I find out through conversations with my grandparents or hearing overhearing conversations that that he got married as a leap of faith, that he was so he so strongly believed that him marrying a woman, God would see that as an act of faith, and he would heal him. Unbeknownst to him, the plumbing would not work. <laughs> you know, I mean, what can you do? I mean, I I have a lot more experience with that now that I'm older. Did you um, ever have one of those uh, situations in your life where you thought maybe I should get married to a woman? No, I well, let's we see we can't jump ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I did, but not in the way that you mean. Okay, because my moment. Okay, so I, let's go back to that moment because you were in New Mexico with your grandparents, and you are kind of finding your own sexuality throughout that whole time. And, yeah, and they got too old, so they couldn't raise you. And then what happens when they get too old? Well, then I go to live with my mother. Um, and or at, at least point, attempt to live with my mother. Have you had any contact with her during that time? I mean, maybe like on a couple holidays, we would see her. She came through town. Um, there was, I did meet my father, my birth father one time. Um, he was a truck driver. And so he was coming through Artesian, New Mexico town that I was born and raised in. And and he'd called my, I remember the day that, that he called, the, fo- the, the phone rang and my grandparents answered, my grandmother answered it and said, that my dad was coming through and he wanted to take me to the, the fair that was in town. And so he swung by, picked me up, took, and I have like three f- photos from that day of us at the fair. And then he dropped me off and left and I never saw him again my entire life. Eventually he died of cancer. Oh. Did he ever try to reach out just to say hi or anything? No. Um, I reached out to him many years I, I, after I got out. I was in the Army for a small stint and 
Hey, I, don't get ahead of yourself. Okay, I'm trying. <laughs> trust me. I'm just messing with you. Oh, going back to what you had said about <laughs> any instances that might have developed my sexuality, there there was one time that I've always carried around with me that I always think about that was a huge determining factor is that when my mother, we were on the road when my mother was doing the rodeo circuit and we were staying in a hotel and um, she had left to go out partying and it was a, a motel room that had two beds and so I was in one bed and she stumbles in drunk with this guy and they have sex in the bed next to me. Um, and I pretended to be asleep and I couldn't remember the, the hotel na name. I can't remember exactly how old I was or where we were. But I remember in that moment just feeling so grossed out. Like I was significantly grossed out and confused and nobody wants to hear their mom having sex, let alone mm. in the bed next to you. And I will always look at that as a determining factor. Maybe not being a causation of sexuality, but certainly a determining factor in the sense that maybe it didn't make me more attracted to men, but it certainly made me less attractive to women. Nobody wants to see their mother or hear their mother in that way. It just grossed me out. Mm -hmm. And even now, my best friend who I live with has sex, morning sex every once in a while with his girlfriend, and I will get super uncomfortable. <laughs> It'll make, I'll turn on music and be like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear... Hearing people have sex, like, outside of porn. <laughs> I would say, so how does porn affect you, or no, do you use it? Well, yeah, of course I use it. I mean, uh, am I here to lie? No, of course I use it, but it's... it's Is it maybe because it's someone that it's very it, close to you? And yes, seeing... exactly why. It's the intimate, it's the, it's the fact of somebody that I know and that I have an intimate relationship with. That I just don't, it makes me feel very uncomfortable to, to hear or see them in that situation. When I feel like most guys would be like high-fiving their best friend for having this morning sex, I'm just like, turn up the music and hide <laughs> in my room. And hopefully hopefully he finishes as see, soon as possible. See, this is where noise-canceling headphones come in handy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to have to invest in some now. Some earplugs or something. So after my after I did this little stint with my, my mother, um, I was probably at this time I was getting in How old early. were you, you said, whenever you were at that moment? Like where, how old were you when you first moved with your mom? Because when I first moved with my mom, I was nine. I was older than that. I was in. I was probably a freshman, maybe tenth grade in oh, okay. high school at that time. Already, almost like a full, yeah. quote air quotes adult. I mean, there was a huge stint where I would go back and forth. I would go live with my grandparents for a couple years, and I'd live with my mom for a summer, and then I it just I was constantly being shuffled back and forth depending on what my mother was doing at that time in her life. Did all this shuffling and lack of like a father figure, were you like, were you a delinquent whenever you were younger, like a little hoodlum running around, no, crossing some ruckus? No, I, I was not when I was living with my grandparents. And, I, and honestly, I don't feel like I was that way with when I was living with my mother as, at all. Um, I do know that I, I hated school. Um, the entire, I mean, I never really went to the same school the entire year. I was always the new kid. I mean, when I, the times that I lived with my mother, she moved around so much that I was constantly being shuffled from one school to the next. Were you bullied at these schools at any time? Um, probably not in the probably not in the way that you mean. I was just kind of like the out, outcast, like when people like I always ate lunch in the library kind of thing, you know. I just so you're a loner. Yeah, I was a loner, but just because I was probably really I was introverted and shy at that time because I was always the new kid, you know. Um, and then. One afternoon, it was it was a Mother's Day. My we got my I was living at this time. I was living with my mother, and we got in this ginormous fight. And she told me to get out of the house that she was kicking me out. What did you fight about? 
I don't even really specifically remember. It was something <laughs> like it was something really silly. It was. I would I would openly admit at that time I was probably a pretty angry kid just in general and because I, I just generally did not like my mother I just didn't we didn't get along I didn't and I was probably bitter from maybe my childhood I don't know like always having a new father I just was kind of rebellious in that sense and we just didn't get along and so we got in a fight and I ended up taking like her car for a joyride. And she had me arrested and pressed full charges. And I ended up going to jail wow. for six months for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. And it was my mother's car. And that's really where my story begins, <laughs> is when I got out of jail. You'll see why. It's one of the most, it's definitely a fork in the road in my life. So I know at this point, well, from what I know, a, a big part of your story has to do with your weight loss. At this point, whenever you go to jail, are you a heavyset man? Um, I've always been a chubby kid. I was always a chubby kid. Okay. I always, I mean, I hated exercising. I was never like in any school, uh, school sports or anything like that. Um, compared to my brother who had a different father. I, when I say he's my brother, um, we had different fathers, but growing up, we definitely considered each other brothers. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but he was super athletic. He was always in football and he always had, um, a lot of friends. He was always a popular kid with his jean jacket and a white snake patch, you know, like <laughs> he was super popular. Um, and I've, I always feel like that's an important detail because people ask me, well, you, you and your brother lived in the same household and had the same environment, but he grew up heterosexual and you grew up gay. And I always use that as an example about how we lived we may have lived in the same household, but we had completely different life experiences. He had tons of friends who had fathers who took him fishing and took him to football games and all of those things. And he had male role models in his life, and I did not. I was absent of that in my life, okay? So I was always a chubby kid, yes. But not to the point that I got later in life through a very unhappy relationship, which we'll get to. <laughs> So the story begins. There I was. In jail. I had just gotten out. I got time served, basically, by the time wait, I went wait, to court. Wait, you're just going to go and pass by all that experience six months of your life? Like, no, you got to tell me how that was. How, what was it like for you, and did you change throughout that six months? Um, no, I, I, I would say that maybe if there's one determining thing that I would remember the most, it's just not having anybody come visit. I mean, my grandparents had passed away at that point. I mean, my mother, who was the reason I was there and pressing charges, wasn't going to come visit me. So I didn't have any visitors. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm at, at this point, I'm like almost seven, maybe had just turned 17. Um, I was really young. I just remember being really young to be in this, you know, general population jail cell with a bunch of guys who are much different, older than I was. I was definitely the young, baby-faced 70-year-old chubby guy in a jail cell for tilling his mom's car. <laughs> and I had no visitors, none. And so I, there nothing like remarkable happened in my jail experience except that it just felt like it took forever to go to court. The system just felt really slow. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so by the time I actually got to go before a judge, he was like, okay, you know, probation and time served. And then I got out of jail. But at that point, I, I became homeless. I didn't have anywhere to live. Obviously, I wasn't going to live with my mother. My grandparents had passed away. I was fatherless. I had nowhere to go. So I ended up in a small town called Temple, Texas at a homeless shelter. Where was, did you go to jail at? Um, just outside of Austin. Like oh, Okay. The, the, town, the little town that I went to start at high school in was called Elgin, Texas. And so 
And so did you like hitchhike to Temple? How did you end up from the jail to Temple? Yes, I did. I hitchhiked. I oh. caught, yeah. Um, and actually, there's a lot of mini stories in my life, trust <laughs> me. And I, I had I had experienced hitchhiking across the country when I was younger. I ran away from home from my mother's house a couple of times, ended up in Florida. Then I hitchhiked from Florida. From to Texas to Florida? Yes. How many hitchhikes did you do? Well, I... How many does that take? Not that many because I, I did it through truck stops. I would just hang out at truck stops and I would mm. jump on a truck with a trucker. And, and he would just take me as far as he'd go and then let me off at the next tr truck stop. And then I'd sleep there for a couple nights until somebody offered me a ride. And then I'd continue the journey. And then I ended up doing it again from Florida all the way to Multnomah Falls, Oregon, all across the country with truck drivers. And then I did it from Oregon all the way back down to Texas over an expense of like a summer, a summer and some, and some you know. So and whenever you were truck driving, well, when you were hitchhiking, you were homeless at this point. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So you were you would just stay at the at the. At yep. the stores? I, well, I would sleep in like the the the, the trucker lounges at the truck stops or I had a backpack and I would sleep literally underneath the trailers. Was, if it was raining, I would sleep underneath the trailer at the truck Whoa. stops in my backpack, in my in my sleeping bag. Or I'd sleep out in the woods. And how would you get food? Would you just I would steal. Oh, you would steal it? Yeah. You weren't scared you were going to go back to jail? Um, I guess at that point it doesn't matter. It's like either you do or you don't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I would like go to, you know, the grocery stores and I would... I would steal food. I mean, I would just put it in my coat and walk out, you know? So, And why never, didn't you ever think about, like, trying to get a job? I know it's difficult as a homeless person because where are you going to shower, where are you going to live, and how are you going to get clothes? But did it ever cross your mind to, like, work to, for anything? Um, Even if it's, like, side jobs, cleaning or anything, so that you could feed yourself on a daily basis? Well, I would say yes, except for the fact that, like, when you're 17 and 18 and you're just, like, homeless, like, it's really... It could be very overwhelming on where to even begin. Yeah. How do you even begin when you walk in to apply for a job and you have no address and you tell somebody that you're homeless and that you ran away from home and that you have your... And keeping in mind, at this point, I'm supposed to be on probations, so like, you checking even in. Texas. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Like, I had already broken my probation by even leaving Texas. There's... At that point, it's not really even about survival. You just don't care. You're just indifferent about it, honestly. I just felt indifferent about probation or going back to jail or getting a job. Um, it, so did any of this, like all this loneliness kind of affect you mentally? Was there ever like a dark, where, did you have many dark moments or, or were you just naturally like adaptable for the situation? I would say that I probably did have dark moments, but it's not. It's hard for me to answer that question now because I had much, much darker moments later in my life, and they pale in contrast to what I went through later in my life. Do you know what I mean? Like when you say yeah. dark moments, I'm thinking, oh, I have dark moments, bro. We're gonna get to those. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> but we... they don't really include like sleeping in truck stops. I mean, I kind of consider that a part of my life. I'm proud of that part of my life now. I like. I don't. At the time, it felt normal to be, but now that I've met so many human beings and heard so many stories, I feel like I have a very unique story in that sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know anybody else that, that hitchhiked with truck stops across the country when they I've were never 17. done that. That actually sounds fun. Like, I'm not making light of the situation, right. but to me, um, like, experiencing things out of the norm just sounds very interesting to me. It'd be something like, I would want to know what that feels like, just to see what it was to live in one of your days. And I'm getting the chills just thinking about even, like, thinking, considering it. Because it sounds amazing, you know? And also, I imagine, like, can I am, am I the type of person that can hack that? Am I strong enough to deal with it? And obviously, you are because you've gotten here to your life now. 
But right now, what we're talking about is like you and Temple. So we're going to go back to that yeah. Temple spot before we get carried away with yes, any other exactly. conversation. I ended so up you, yeah. in, a, in a homeless shelter called Martha's Kitchen. And that's where I kind of marinated for a good while, at least a year. And they at 6 o'clock in the morning, they would kick you out of the shelter and they wouldn't let you back in until 8 o'clock at night. And during the days, I would literally just roam the street. Just I'd hang out at the mall or... I mean, I never, like, for the record, I never stood on the, the corner with a cardboard sign that said, you know, homeless. Why? Homie. I don't, I just, maybe I was too proud for that. Maybe, I don't know. I just never did that kind of thing. I was just, uh, I was never a beggar. I just kind of, I ate whenever the shelter fed me. And the rest of the time, I just marinated on the streets. I just kind of roamed. Was it hard to have relationships whenever you're homeless, when like friends or boyfriends, I or never. Dating. Well, I I the back at that time I would never. I still was not even close to coming out, so the thought of having a boyfriend was not an option. Um, and also, the only friends at that time I had in my life were the people that were in the shelter with me, that were kind of relate related to me. There were families in the shelter that had kids my age that I was friends with, but then after they got back on their feet and left the shelter, I never saw them again. That kind of stuff. Eventually, I did get a job. My Really, my first real job was um, busing tables at a Mexican restaurant in Temple. And that's where, like, the best part of this story starts. Because here I was, 17-year-old, homeless, fatherless, no life ambition, no money, no job, nothing. And I get invited to go to a youth group at a church. By who? By some servers, some some kids that were my age that were serving tables at the restaurant. They said one day they're like Clayton. Every Wednesday, we know. I mean, at that point, the the restaurant knew that I was living in the homeless shelter, and so they kind of gave me a you know a chance busting tables to help me get on my feet and that kind of stuff. And these and these guys that I became friends with were very involved in their church, and they invited me to come to their Wednesday night youth group. At this point. Have you already kind of denounced your religion? No, okay, no. I, I wasn't. A, I mean, at that point, I would say I was a blank, a blank slate. I was neither non-religious or religious. I was only raised by Southern Baptist grandparents. Mm -hmm. I was Southern Baptist in the way that most Catholics are Catholics. They were born into it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you know plenty of people who will tell you that they're Catholic, but it's been years since they stepped inside of a church. Yeah. Okay. Like I was, I inherited Southern baptism. Okay. Um, and that's really, I feel like that's an important start part of my story because later on I do become extremely religious. So I get invited, it's a Wednesday night. I get invited to this youth group only to show up and find out that it's their youth group is really like 300 kids on a Wednesday night, a soundstage, a youth band, smoke machines, lights, and a youth pastor who I immediately was attracted to. For a number of reasons. One, I felt, thought he was physically attractive, but also he, the first day of that, when I came in uh, that, that night on that Wednesday night, he saw me as a new person. He came up and was like, hey, I noticed you're new. Like, what's your name? My name is Pastor Chad. And he took my hand and he pulled me close and he gave me a hug. And I just, it was like somebody poured warm water on me, man. It's like when you are fatherless and you are homeless and somebody says, hey, I noticed you're new. Let me give you a hug. He could have been any religion. It could have been the Church of Latter-day Saints. It could have been um, Islamic. It could have been anything. And I would have immediately converted, man. I would have I would have immediately bought anything that they were selling because I was so craving a family. I was so starving for attention or for stability. 
And I was an easy target, honestly. And so I get invited to this church. I go, I, he gives this message. And of course, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm listening to this message thinking, I mean, look at all these people. They noticed I was new. They, they, they came and introduced themselves to me. I had that moment where he gave a message about um, a certain topic. And of course, I was thinking, he's talking to me. <laughs> he's talking to me. They must have told him I was coming. And he's like specifically preaching to me out of all these kids. He's, re he's really talking to me right now. I left that night and I went back to that ch to my homeless shelter and I literally, man, I, t I swear on everything that I know, I did not sleep the entire night because I had become so convinced that if I died that night, I would go straight to hell. I was terrified, mixed with these feelings of like, just like, what was that, man? Like, God, that was so exciting. The music was cool and, and Pastor, that Pastor Chad gave me a hug and he welcomed me. And, and that didn't scare you that the fact that something like religion automatically essentially was is already affecting your health. You're not sleeping all day and you already think you're going to go to hell. Like how you weren't scared by that? Oh, or, yes, or? I was I was scared of going to hell, but it was also in contrast to that that overwhelming feeling of of welcomeness, of like of being welcomed and being loved, and one certainly outweighed the other. I I accepted the fear of hell in order to gain a family. It was something that I was willing to, to put on the table. And I went back the next morning by myself and walked to that church and found the church janitor. He was vacuuming in the church. And I walked up to him and I was like, you're the first person I saw. Can you talk? Can we talk? And he was like, they, his name was Robbie. And he was like the assistant youth pastor. He also worked at the church as the janitor, as a custodian. And he had um, a closet underneath the stairwell that basically was like his office that he kept all of his projects and stuff like that. And he, he's like, hey, man, step into my office. Let's have a talk. And he had two buckets of paint, and he pulled them up next to each other, and he said, sit down, have a talk. <laughs> and I sat down on this bucket of paint, and, and he looked at me, and he said, what's going on? And it was like a dam opened up inside me, man. I immediately started crying, and I was like, I don't know. I just I know that I was here last night, and I live at the shelter and I'm homeless, and and I left here last night just feeling homesick almost. Like, I felt so welcomed. And we had this conversation for an hour, and I just told him kind of like my, up to that point, my life story. And at the end of it, he just, he gave me a hug. And he's like, we're here for you, and I want to be your friend. And he said, let me tell you a story about a man named Jesus. And he proceeds to tell me the story of the virgin birth and the crucifixion and the resurrection had and you, forgiveness. Have you heard these stories before through your grandparents? Yes, but I heard them through the years of an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old through coloring books and stuff like that. Not in the not as a homeless person, not as somebody who had a better concept of sin and and heaven and hell and all these things. These have you know I I had an understanding of Christianity through through a child's eyes, and then later. It, it became more logical to me. I was I was able to think on a different level. I was able to... I mean, nobody tells an eight-year-old that they're going to be tortured in a lake of fire for not believing <laughs> that Jesus was the Son I mean, of I God. I think some people do. <laughs> in rare cases, but usually in terms of an eight-year-old, they're only talking about God's love. They're not talking about God's punishment to an eight-year-old. But they do to a teenager. That's how they, the conversation changes. And even then, I, I didn't like... At the end of the conversation, he asked me, he said, you know, after he tells me this, his version of, of Jesus and forgiveness and all these things and says, 
You know, do you want to become a part of a family? Do you want to, do you want to be a part of my family? Do you want to say the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart? Yes. Sign me up. I'll place a deposit right now. <laughs> Sign me up. And I sure enough, he took my hands in his hands and I bowed my head and I asked Jesus into my heart. And no matter what I say about the rest of my life, I will logically, as an atheist and as a person of science, I will not deny the fact that something happened. Like I had this moment of just like relief come over me that that even for a small second, I didn't feel like a vagabond anymore. Like I was, I was literally like recruited into a family of like this ginormous family of all these people that worked at the church and 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 after after I said this sinner's prayer and we hugged and cried, he opened up the door and there were people there to hug me and and welcome me into the family. Sold, man. Sold. You know what I'm saying? And so I go back to the homeless shelter and within like a week, Pastor Chad had called me and and offered me a job at the church and he picked me up and took me and bought me clothes and got my hair cut. And then there was a house where like four or five guys that worked at the church lived and all shared rooms. He invited me to come and stay in the house with them and took me out of the shelter. He became really the first and only father figure in my life. And I, I lapped up everything that he said. I could not, at that point in my life, I could not imagine having any logical conversation with him about whether something really was or wasn't the way that he said. Whatever he said was the truth to me. And I embraced it wholeheartedly because I was so relieved. I was so relieved to be a part of a family and to not be in the shelter. And, and, and to be a place that if I didn't show up one day, people would be like, where is Clayton? Where is he? That is an amazing feeling for somebody that had lived that kind of life up to, that I had lived up to that point. And I, man, I tell you what, man, I poured my everything I had into being a Christian, man. How I long, became, how long uh, was that were you from temple to that moment where you're out of the shelter? How long was that? A couple that? weeks. A couple weeks. So you were in the shelter for a couple weeks. Yeah. Well, no, I was in the shelter for a couple weeks after I became a Christian, but I had, was up to that point, I'd probably lived in the shelter for maybe a year. Oh, wow. Okay. So a year homeless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I was homeless more than that, but I'd lived in the shelter. I don't, when I consider, when I say I was homeless, the times that I was homeless, I don't really consider the shelter because I got three meals a day and I had a bed to sleep in at night. When I say the times that I was homeless, I'm talking about the times I was sleeping at trucker stops. You know, I was sleeping underneath the trailers of, of 18 wheelers or sleeping in the woods. That's my idea of homeless. But when I was in the shelter, I was like, I don't know. I, I wasn't sleeping in the woods. <laughs> yeah. That's a different, yeah. there's a difference, right? And so I had this, this, this conversion to Christianity um, like maybe somebody that gets when they're in prison. Is uh, like being a Baptist uh, like extremely different than being a Christian? No, they're exactly the same okay, thing. Yeah. The only difference is that the church that I had my conversion moment was what they would call non non-denominational or Pentecostal, which was basically they didn't sing hymns. They had live bands and they were contemporary and they had smoke <laughs> machines, you know, and like stuff like that. Cool church. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> I don't think I, I I don't think that if it would have been any other denomination that I would have had nearly the impact in my life. I mean because I mean music speaks to people, and so if you relate, I mean I feel like even atheists that jam out to a good song that don't doesn't believe in God can still get emotional over music. It's it's a very human aspect of of our species. You know what I'm saying? And so when there's a band and there's and they're beautifully backlit. And they're playing something in E minor, and you're homeless. You're gonna ball your eyes out, and you're gonna call it God. 
You're going to say, hey, Jesus is in the room. <laughs> and when Pastor Chad said, Jesus is here, I believed him. You know, I, I lapped it up with a, with a spoon, man. So even like when you see, feel those moments now, do you still think of that as Jesus? Or have you now learned that it's it's something completely it's different? It's completely different. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I know it's hard with somebody like me. <laughs> so I had this conversion moment, man. I began working at the church and really threw myself in, into my newfound Christian religion, man. Like I, was, I had become like the poster child of our church of somebody that Jesus changed their life. I mean, I gave testimony. I began to I my my pastor bought me a guitar so that I could learn to play guitar because I wanted to become a worship leader. And then eventually, over over time, I became a worship leader of huge youth conferences. And then one day, some old some habits are hard to break, regardless if you have a family or not. And for me, nesting has always been or settling down has always been something that I struggle with because of my roots growing up. Like it's really always been hard for me to stay in one place for. Along for any extended amount of time, I so get are you very about restless. to say like you're about to get an itch at this point in your life? No, oh, okay. well, yes, but in a in a different way. I don't. I move around a lot now, not because I have a hard time settling down, but because I feel like there's so much of the world that I want to see. I I travel now for different reasons than I did when I was a kid. But I did get an itch eventually, and that itch came into the idea that God was calling me to go out and be a missionary in the world. Like I got restless in my church over a couple years and how that kind of came out to me was, was like God was calling me to be a missionary where, which means I could take my Christianity on the road, you know, it was a perfect scenario for me. And so I ended up joining a mission, uh, uh, an organization called friendships where you literally live on a boat and travel from one place to the other doing like relief effort. So at the time when I joined, we had just experienced a bunch of mudslides in Roatan. And, and so I lived on a boat that, that did relief effort back and forth, loaded trains, that kind of stuff. And I lived on that boat for like six months with a bunch of other full-time missionaries. I mean, they fed us, but, and I slept in a little room at the bottom of the boat kind of thing, you know. And then one day I woke up. I had joined it in Galveston, Texas, and then... Through over six months of all these adventures living on this as a missionary on this boat, I ended up outside of San Pedro, California, and then I had the itch. So around this time, you're what, 1920? Yeah, exactly. And I ended up getting off the boat in California just randomly. I was just like, hey, this is where I'm going to quit my mission. I'm going to stay in California <laughs> now. So I ended up getting a, church, uh, getting a job at a, at, a, at a local church as, as um, a worship leader, leading worship for the congregation of like maybe four or 500 people. And then I began kind of hopping from church to church. Like, that's just what I would do. Like, I would spend maybe six months at a church, and then I'd go to a conference. I'd meet somebody who I was drawn to, like their personality or something new, and I would pick up my stuff and move, and I'd become involved in that church, and I would do that kind of thing for a little while, and then I'd move from church to church. I became so a it's hopper. Like these, yeah, these churches became your truck stop. You're going back yes. into your same oh habits like gosh, you were mentioning. Oh, my gosh, nobody's ever said it that way, man, you but know? that's exactly what it was. Somewhere along the way, uh, backing up a little bit, Pastor Chad had, um, there was a girl in our ministry that he was very close to that was kind of fatherless, but she was involved in the ministry, and and there began whispers of like, oh man, you and, her name was Ronnie, um, they're like, oh, you, you two would be perfect for each other. I mean, they had already like, you know, me, the worship leader, 
with this godly woman, and we were going to be youth pastor and start and find our own churches and start our own churches. Like they had already like began this like narrative for my life. Was that strange for you for someone who's always on the road and doesn't ever, in my mind, what I would think would never even consider thinking about the future because he's only worried about the present? Was that, did you think that's probably one of the reasons why it made you flee? Is because now they're putting you down roots in a place that, in a thing that you're not used to? No, I think that it was because I was gay. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's easier than that. It's, it's because I was gay. And when you're somebody, when you're young 20s and you're involved in the ministry, there becomes a point in your life where people start wondering why you're not married. Honestly. I mean, it's, I mean, the typical youth pastor is married young, starts a family, and that's kind of like their job resume. Um, and especially with this girl, Ronnie, um, there was all these whispers about us, you know, maybe starting dating or courting, as they called it in our church and stuff like that. But I've been gay as long as I can remember. And I... And I never had a doubt, man, that the plumbing would not work. I never had a, I never thought that, it never crossed my mind that I would marry out of faith and that God would miraculously heal me on my, my wedding night. You know what I'm saying? The past that I had and that I used as, as cover and a smokescreen was that I was so involved in the church and so dedicated to God that really I was saving myself. I wasn't ready to be in a relationship with the girl because I really want to focus my life on, on my faith. And, and people ex not only accepted that, but it, to them, it made me look more godly. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, oh, Clayton's saving himself. And I guess it's also easier because you don't, because I'm assuming you weren't very flamboyant either whenever you were Right, here, yeah. Looking at you now, you, 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 can, you can pass as a straight person. Like, you can, someone can think <laughs> of you I take that like, as the ultimate compliment. Yeah. I, I've always, I'm not saying that I'm masculine, but I definitely have, don't feel like I've ever been feminine. And I don't really know why that is because, I, like I said, I've never had a father figure. The only thing that I can think of is that I so knew that I did not want to be like my mother. <laughs> you fought hard to, like, completely not be in every yeah, sense of the Yeah, yeah, I guess. And it's, but I was never into sports or anything like that. I mean, I was always a vagabond. I just, just – I consider myself pretty normal. The people in my life now, they'll say, oh, yeah, I could totally – see that you're gay like if I didn't know you but that's only because they know me and they know that sometimes I get kind of crazy and passionate about certain things or that I'm an artist now you know which is, some people equate to homosexuality being artistic so I had this uh you left off in California yeah okay so California this is where I really I ended up at church in, in a in Bakersfield California oh I hear it's beautiful there Really? That's what someone told me, that it was beautiful. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> the way that I remember Bakersfield <laughs> are dusty fields and tumbleweeds. Okay. Okay, so um, I don't remember it being beautiful, except I do remember that this was really coming to the point where this was the first time I ever came out to somebody, and it was to my pastor. His name was Birch Caffey. And at that point, coming out to somebody, to me, and took what, hours. What? Why was it right at that moment? What, what was drawing that out of you? Um, logically, I would have to say that maybe my closeness with Birch made me feel safe enough to tell him, even though he was a Christian and and very much a, a strong believer. I felt like maybe he would have. There's something about him that made me feel safe to tell him that I wouldn't feel judged or. But I was always worried because I was really involved in the youth ministry, and I and there but, were times when I had like kids stay the night at my house and stuff mm -hmm. like that. We would like go on these overnight trips, and so. 
coming out in the ministry for me was was harder because I was very concerned that people would immediately draw conclusions that I would, had been inappropriate with their kids on these long trips or whatever because of the stories that you hear. But were you already kind of wanting to have a relationship with a man? Is no. that why you're like, I wanted to come out? Because I'm still trying to figure out like why you think that needs to come out. Like why you have to state that you're homosexual? Like why is it why is it eating you inside? Well, because at that time, I even when I came out at that point in my life, I ne- it wasn't hey, Birch, I'm gay. When you're involved in the ministry and you are on staff and you are a full blown Jesus freak, you're not gay. You're heterosexual, but you struggle with homosexuality. That's the way that it's worded. I when I came out when I first came out, it was like hey, by the way, I'm gay. It was I struggle with with something that I want God to, to heal me from. Mm-hmm. In the same way that somebody would say, I want to tell you that I'm addicted to meth or that I struggle with pornography. There's so many things that the church will openly accept as a struggle, but for some reason, when it comes to homosexuality, it has such a darker vibe to it. And so you don't, come, as a youth pastor, you don't say, by the way, I'm gay and I'm still going to be a youth pastor. You say, I struggle with XXX and then, you know... And so you come out to this I, man, and how does he take it? Um, I, he took it very well, man. He cried with me. He hugged me. He said that it didn't change the it, way that he felt about me. But to be very clear, I never said, by the way, I'm gay. I was about to ask. Like, did you say it? No, I'm not. Say it? I would not say that I was gay. I would say that I, uh, Birch, I want to tell you something. I mean, this was after three hours of walking him through my <laughs> life and being fatherless and crying, <laughs> pacing back and forth. So what I guess I'm trying to say is... I struggle with homosexuality. For some reason, when you say it that way, it makes somebody who you feel is going to judge you feel less judgmental. It makes you feel like it's a safer way to say it because they can accept it as, okay, you're saying that you're heterosexual, but you really you struggle with something like everybody struggles with something. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was never a blank statement, I'm gay. That didn't happen until many years later in my life. And it, for the mo- in that scenario, I mean, it worked out perfectly until... The whispers started happening, and and things started going down, and the elders of the church, and it's it's really hard to explain, but there was a ter- period in my life where basically they presented to me um, an alternative called Exodus, which is a place that you go to have the gay prayed out of you, an, um, a program, and I went through that. The church paid for it and sent me through this Exodus program where I attempted to pray the gay out of me. There was a time where I fasted for 40 days, man. Nothing but chicken broth for 40 days, except for full disclosure, one time I was driving by Denny's and I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I stopped (laughs) by and had a side salad at Denny's in the middle of this 40-day fast. And I felt guilty forever for it. I mean, I'm talking sackcloth and ashes, man. I I had a key to the church and almost every single night I would go in there and I'd throw myself down at the altar and I'd say, God, take this from me. Even you, even... Even Paul in the Bible says, I had three, I have a thorn in my side and I prayed God three times to remove it and he chose not to remove it. Like there was, I was like, why? Why is it that I look around and I see all these people claiming miraculous healings and here I am a servant of you, dedicate my life to you. And all I want to do is be heterosexual and have a family and have kids. I mean, I've been fatherless and familyless my whole life. This is what I want more than anything. And I've dedicated my life to you and, and yet nothing. I mean, I, I mean, full disclosure, I even went so far as during my fasting period to try to masturbate to straight porn, to try to train my brain. I was desperate, man. I was desperate to be heterosexual. 
So when people later in my life tell me that they believe that God can heal me from it, but the choices in my life prevented him from having the full ability to do that, it makes me angry because they don't know the things that I, yeah. the, the, the links that I went through. The only people that say that are Christians, honestly, because if you believe that God can make the universe in seven days, surely he can make me straight, yeah. right? So I came out, did this, it kind of backfired because the first night of this Exodus program, we were in a huge auditorium of like 12,000 people that were at this huge gathering, man. And on the first night, a, the main speaker gets up and says, if you're in this audience and you struggle with homosexuality, so homosexuality please stand up now. And I was terrified. I was glued to my seat. <laughs> and then before you know it, like everybody started standing up. Like thousands of people started standing up. And I stood up for the first time. And that was my first like public declaration of my sexuality. And it completely backfired because for some reason I will always remember that moment of as like my true coming out moment where I was like, I felt like one of everybody else or something. Yeah. And I came back from Exodus and I just told them, I said, I'm sorry, it, it didn't work. It didn't work. Or it did because I feel like so far you've had a very impactful moments when you when you felt you weren't alone. Yes, exactly. And like with the pastor, you felt you weren't alone and you converted and all of a sudden you had all these homosexuals that showed you you weren't alone. And so it did impact There's you. There's a lot the more gay way. people in the yeah. world than I ever thought. This is before the internet. That's one thing that's really important. Like I can't imagine being in high school now with all the apps and stuff like that where it's probably much easier to come out. One, because marriage equality is a thing and it's become way more socially acceptable. I don't think that it's any easier in the church. I think that it's still hard to come out if oh, you're I still in the have, ministry. I still have friends that struggle who are really religious with their homosexuality to the point where like it, it just cripples them. It's it's terrible because you're, you're... It's not even about the fear of hell. It's the fear of of rejection from your peers, of people that you love. You don't, nobody wants to come out to their parents that they love who also equally believe that their kid is going to burn in hell for being gay mm -hmm. or for not denouncing a sin in their life. I had So when, when I came back from Exodus, that was kind of the beginning of the end. That was my transition, not really away from Christianity, but away from the church. I left the church long before I left Christianity, to be very clear. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like even when I left the church and I and I decided, well, what am I going to do with my life now? Like now that I'm not going to be a worship leader or a youth pastor or be in a church. And at this point, you didn't even finish high school, so you no, don't I have a diploma. No. And so you have to go back and decide, should I get a GED? Is it worth it? Like how do you move forward after this moment? Yeah, I, I ended up uh, – this was in Bakersfield, California, and I ended up in the middle of the night. I had an F-150. I loaded up what little belongings I had, and I just drove. And I ended up in Maine over four days. I just drove. And I ended up in Maine. I was sitting at the bar. That is a, like literally across. Yes. The I drove as far as I could, and I, and I stopped to have lunch at an Applebee's. And a manager – it was a slow day. We just have a conversation. And told him I was thinking about moving in the area, and he offered me a job. And I started serving tables at Applebee's, and I ended up just staying in Maine for, for a little while. I would still, at that point, would consider myself an on-fire Christian. I was I, so, definitely still a Christian at that point. So I'm kind of like moving forward, not so much forward, yeah. but it's more of a question is, do you still like run from all your problems today as a person? No, not even close. Because you're man. still running at this point. You're in your, what, mid-20s at this yeah. point? Yeah. And you're so running every time you see a problem, you just kind of go across the world. It's and I don't really consider it as like I was running from problems. I look at us. I was 
you're leaving was, them behind kind of thing? I was, I was, I was taking the etch a sketch and I was shaking it. Okay. And I was starting from scratch. That's what I was doing. I, I don't feel like I was running from anything, and I don't feel like I was running to anything. I just felt like I didn't have an anchor in my life. With no family, no friends, you have no ties. Like you go, come and go as you want. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I had no belongings. And so was it because you hit the end of the road or was it because there felt something right about me that you decided to kind of settle there for your next journey? Um, none. I just, the manager offered me a job <laughs> at Applebee's. I mean, there's no, like nothing deeper than the fact that he offered me a job and I served, started serving tables in Applebee's and why not me, you know? Um, but I will say that I would, when I left California, I struggled with homosexuality. And over that five-day journey, by the time I ended up in Maine at that Applebee's, I was out. I was gay. My story changed over those five days. Did you um, kind of play around with the idea of, like, having sex or going on dates in those, like, five days? Did no. you consider, like, you know, cruising or anything? No. Okay. No. So still, you're, you're still— I didn't know what that was, honestly. So you're still a virgin up until this point. Yes. Okay. Yep. Define, well, <laughs> you have to define virginity in terms of homosexuality, man. Because, like, did I mess around with other boys when I was in high school or middle school? Like, did we, like, naked wrestle kind of stuff? Yes. And I, so my very first sexual experience was with my best friend, Elvio Paglaroni, when I was, sorry if he's listening. Because <laughs> I know he's married with kids now, but um, I was 11 years old. And he was a perfect prime example of, like, I was really attracted to not only him, but the relationship that he had with his father. They were very, very close. And we lived in the same apartment complex, and we used to stay in each other's houses, even in the middle of the week. On the weekdays, we were best friends. And so what do you do, like, when you discover jerking off and your best friend does it too? Why not do it in the same bed, you know? And so so I would consider that me losing my virginity. Okay. Like, that's how I've always defined my virginity because I've never had sex with a woman my entire life. So... To me, that is my my first sexual, real, intimate sexual contact was when I was eleven. So, but throughout, of course, throughout my Christian experience, I obviously claim virginity. You know, mm -hmm. um, I ended up in Maine, and then I ended up meeting somebody. Um, his name was Josh. I became very, very attracted to him. I would say that he's probably the first person that I felt like I really fell in love with. Not just like a, a common attraction or a physical attraction, but like an emotional dependence almost. Besides maybe a few random straight guys throughout my life that I was felt very <laughs> attracted to and people in the church or something like that, you know. This is somebody who was also gay but wasn't out at all. Um, a cop of the local, the little town that we lived in, in Maine. And it was... An unhealthy, it was a very unhealthy relationship because I felt way more for him than he did for me. It was very unrequited, this relationship was. He I was mean, a, that's a common thing yes. in your life is um, very, very like the struggle and yes. complicated and unhealthy. So, and honestly, it's kind of set its tone for relationships later on in my life because anytime, anytime I would date somebody who I felt was really into me, it was almost a turnoff. It was almost like, oh, you're smothering me. I felt most comfortable wow. in relationships where I was like, constantly in like did he call is it what why isn't he calling me or like it was very i was only comfortable in those tumultuous kind of relationships if it was something that was evil even where he, the person was as equally attracted to me as i was to them it was usually like a deal breaker <laughs> i would 
it would never work out in that scenario in that sense. Were you like sabotage it to end or it I, just didn't work out because you just lost attraction for them kind of? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think that I, I consciously sabotaged anything. I just felt like I was always more attracted to people who were less attracted to me. I guess that's the only way that I could put it. Okay. If I was ever trying to date somebody who I felt was really into me, it was a turnoff. Like, it would be like, oh, I don't know, this isn't really working. Like, I felt most comfortable yearning for somebody. That's where it felt most comfortable to me. And Josh really gave me all that I wanted <laughs> in that relationship, trust me. Like, I mean, I yearned after this guy, and he would, but it was only a sexual relationship. It was this, the perfect scenario where I would look at my phone 20 times a day to see if he called, and i never hear from him, and like, randomly on a Wednesday, he would knock on the door and we'd mess around and he would leave and I wouldn't see him again for a month or something like that. And then I would cry for a month until I got to see him again. That's where I felt most comfortable in that relationship. Um, and it got to the point where I was just like, it became so unhealthy for me that I, the itch started happening. I was like, I, I just can't, I, I can't ever see myself leaving this, this situation on my own, in my own power. He's constantly going to be randomly stopping by, dragging me along, and I'm always going to be crying, looking at my phone. And over a long period of time, it just gets so exhausting that even for somebody like me, I could see that it was unhealthy. And so I did the most obvious thing that I should do. I joined the Army. You know? <laughs> and how long were you in this kind of like on and off situation? I'd say Josh? about a year. Okay. I'd say about a year. Um, and Josh was somebody that – i he's a, definitely a bookmark in my life because – until much, much later in my life, until honestly, until the last maybe a couple of years, he's somebody that I've always carried around in the back of my head as like not really the one that got away, but somebody that kind of um, determined what kind of guys I was attracted to later in life. Physical features, personality features. Um, Did he also kind of kind of like affect like how you were sexually as a person, like how you like, did he give you, yes. did he set the tone for how you have a sexual relationship with somebody? Um, I don't know about the tone of, of that sense, but there were certain things that that were involved in mine and Josh's sexual relationship that I always looked for in other relationships later in my life. For instance, I, mean, I don't know how, I didn't listen to any of your podcasts, so I don't know how real <laughs> people get or how much you feel comfortable talking uh -huh. about sex, but if a guy can get off from a blowjob, it's... That's a huge turn on for me, and that's because that's something that Josh did. Like that's something that that was defined in my early in, in my in my life. And so whenever I through the next twenty something years of my life, if I dated somebody, that was something that I would always wonder or ask them or or try to find in a relationship. So yeah. if they weren't able to, was it kind of it like, a, oh, if he doesn't love me, or yeah, not hot yeah, enough, I'm, I'm or too ugly. I would be really insecure about it. And not just that, but there's other things. Like, the, he's the reason that I, I feel like I'm attracted to blondes. He was a cop, so there's a there's a reason why, even to this day, I, I find uniforms really hot, <laughs> you know? And so I joined the Army to get to literally get over somebody. Yeah, I went to I went into boot camp to, to, to have a situation where there would be complete cutoff of communication. Why not just move to the other side of the world like you did before in California? What, why was it about the army that was like, this is my next step? One, the brochure that they handed me looked really cool. <laughs> okay. And also, the army off, offered me a, some sort of stability, you know, like... Later on in my life, I can look back and realize that I always chose careers 
that gave me a family, but it was at the cost of my sexuality. I mean, I've had to go in and come out of the closet several times in my life based on whatever careers I've chosen. I mean, I, I eventually became a firefighter, and that was another thing that I had to go into the closet in order to gain a brotherhood. It's only only recently in my life that it, after I became a photographer that I was allowed to to be out and maybe have a family of artists that where it's not a, it's not a big deal if you're gay and you're a photographer or a wedding photographer, you know. But the church, the army, 